Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Now, I'd like you to stand if you can. And it's beautiful to see the men all dress up here. And I would like to encourage all the men to keep up. Every Sunday is a heavenly feast. And I heard some ladies say, Amen. Yeah. Wow, even to see Sam with a tie. The Lord is alive. That's beautiful. Revelation chapter 6. Here's the word of the Lord. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse. Bright red, its rider was permitted to take shalom, peace from the earth, so that people should slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I look, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius! and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I look, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades, or Hades, followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that's been rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone is slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, 
And who can stand? Please be seated. Father, we come before you as your children, and we ask you to give us bread. And you promise that you will not give us rocks or serpents, but you will give us food. So satisfy us this morning with your word. Help us. Help us to understand the text. Help us to apply the Scripture into our lives. I pray that you would help me to be clear, to be faithful. And help the congregation also to be very attentive, faithful in their listening. Making sure that the things that I'm speaking are in accordance with your word. So we all need your help here. So we ask you, empower us, Holy Spirit. Enable us to grasp your truth, to be changed, to be transformed. Bless your people in Salem, Lord. Bless the churches in Salem. We pray that your flock would be fed to grow into the likeness of the great shepherd Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Especially during times of uncertainty, chaos, pain, that people try to come with different reasons to explain what's taking place. You can see that it, that never happens when everything is going well. Right? When, when, when things are going well, you don't see anybody trying to explain why things are going well. But when you have a time of uncertainty, crisis, then you have all sorts of speculations. The Britannica says, Conspiracy theories increase in prevalence in times of widespread anxiety, uncertainty, or hardship, as during wars and economic depressions, and in the aftermath of natural disasters like tsunamis, earthquakes, and pandemics. goes on to say, this suggests that cons conspiratorial thinking is driven by a strong human desire to make sense of social forces that are self-relevant, important, and threatening. Think about every time you have something major happening, people try with theories in order to explain why these things are happening. So now we have the Illuminati, QAnon, the Great Reset. When Kennedy, President Kennedy was assassinated, all sorts of theories explaining. The Merriam-Webster defines conspiracy theory as a theory that explains an event or set of circumstances as the result of a secret plot by usually powerful conspirators. So people think that they have the truth of what's happening behind the veil. Isn't that true? So the conspiracy theory is some people say, we actually know what's taking place behind the veil that you all cannot see. So let me unveil to you what's actually taking place. And that's what people try to do. It's the 
attempt to remove the curtains and reveal what's truly happening. And we as Christians actually are the only ones who truly know what's taking place. Because Christ has revealed to us. This whole imagery of removing the curtains and showing, I know, all this anxiety, all these problems, here is why it's taking place. And then people come with their theories in order to explain that. But Christians, we have, we have what is taking place. And we have, I would say, perfectly revealed to us what's taking place because I believe the Word of God is perfect. And that's what we see, especially in the book of Revelation. It's the revealing, the removing of the curtains and letting us see what's actually taking place. These questions of suffering... They're not new. Think about the Christians in the first century as they are being persecuted. The church is being persecuted. Wait a second, but is Jesus reigning? Did Jesus conquer death? Is now at the right hand of the Father ruling over all the earth? So why so much persecution? Why so much suffering? And we ask the same questions. Is Jesus sovereign over all things? We say that He is. So why HIV virus? Why cancel cells? Why earthquakes? Why all the disasters? And you see, that's exactly what Revelation helps us, is to see with the eyes of faith What's truly happening? And especially in Revelation chapter 6. That's a wonderful, wonderful chapter to help us to calm down and see what's taking place in heaven. So, let's go to Revelation. Revelation is a wonderful book. I love the book of Revelation. But I think a church, in order to fully grasp this book, must be immersed in the Old Testament. This whole book is grounded in the Old Testament. It's the last chapter of God's book. The Bible is God's book, and that's the last chapter of His book. I like what uh, Scott Duvall says in his commentary. He says, Revelation presents the ending to God's great story in colorful language and powerful imagery. Oh, while the details of this awesome and mysterious book are often debated... The main idea stands clear. God wins. Revelation tells how the sovereign ruler of the universe destroys evil, rescues believers, transforms creation, and lives among his people forever. So it's heartbreaking that so many Christians, they run to the book of Revelation, not to get a, 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 a picture, a glimpse of the glory of Christ, but they run to the book of Revelation in order to maybe satisfy their carnal curiosity of, of questions that they have. That's not why this book was written. This book was not written to satisfy carnal curiosity about future things. 
was actually written to a suffering community of believers. And I think the first verses help us understand what this book is all about. So very briefly, I will show you how I interpret the book of Revelation. So verse 1, chapter 1, you have there, the revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis, the unveiling, the revealing. And apocalypsis, we always think it's the end of the world, but actually it was a type of literature, apocalyptical literature, that's rich in symbolism. So for example, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel, they're called apocalyptic literature because of the style of writing, you have all these beasts and all these imageries that catch our attention. That's a type of literature. And notice the revelation of whom? Of Jesus Christ. Meaning this book is about Jesus and was given by Jesus. It's all about Him. And when you see the Jesus Christ, what is the Christ? That reminds us that we need to know the Old Testament. Because he's saying that now Jesus is the fulfillment of all the expectations of the Old Testament, of the Messiah, the Christ to come. It also says, which God gave him to show whom? To show whom? His servants. Who are the servants? The Christians, the churches, as we will see. The things that must soon take place. This must soon take place, I believe, is drawn from Daniel. And it's a... A parallel with the last days. And the last days began with Jesus' coming and resurrection. So things that are already taking place. And it says, He made it known. And that's a very important word. Semayo. The same word used in the book of Daniel for when God reveals things through symbols and imageries. So that helps us to understand that the way that the Lord is giving this book is through symbols and imageries. So you've got to be very careful with the literal interpretation of this book. Because right here is telling us that it's very symbolic. By sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw, blesses the one who reads of Allowed the words of this what? Prophecy. So, Revelation is also a prophetic book. And here's where people get confused and they think that prophetic is always what? Foretelling. Foretelling. Future. And they don't realize that the majority of the prophecies in the Old Testament, the prophetic books, is not foretelling, but foretelling. Foretelling. Speaking to people what's going on. So it's important. The book of Revelation is a prophetic book in the sense that it's speaking to the church what's taking place. And yes, there is future aspects. And you remember, if it's a prophetic book and you read the prophets in the Old Testament, one thing that you see is repetition. You get the book of Isaiah, thick book, book of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and they keep repeating their messages. And that's very important because prophetic book, the Bible, is full of repetition. And that's what we see in Revelation. Repetition, recapitulation. Something that the Bible has, recapitulation. John, 
Just as an example, the, the seals. John shows the end of the world with the sixth and the seventh seal. So that was supposed to be done. And then he moves to the trumpets. And now he's giving a different view of what Jesus is doing until the consummation. So that's what we see in the book of Revelation. It's not a, a, a progressive line moving through time, but John keeps showing what's taking place from different angles. Just like in the Bible, we see that happening. So, for example, creation. Why do you have two accounts of creation? One from one angle, the other from a different angle. You have the books of Kings and Chronicles. Isn't that all the same thing? You see, recapitulation. He's giving from one angle, the other from a different angle. The conversion of Paul. Read the book of Acts and see how many times you read about the conversion of Paul. And you always see from one angle, from a different angle, what's taking place. So that's exactly what's taking place here. As a prophetic book, there is recapitulation, repetition of the same things. And then we read, And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. John, who is this book for? Who is he writing this book to Seven churches. So just like Paul's letters, this book is also a letter. So do you see how full it is? It's a apocalyptic book, it's a prophetic book, and it's a letter. So, brothers and sisters, whatever interpretation you have of Revelation, if it doesn't make sense to the people who are receiving this letter, you have the wrong interpretation. Because that's a letter. And the people who are receiving this letter must understand. So the whole idea that you come to Revelation, and the book of Revelation is talking about helicopters coming, you, you already missed the whole point. Because people could not understand that. And that's a letter for people who are suffering, Christian churches. So may the Lord help us as we go through this wonderful book. He promised to bless us. Bless are those who read aloud. May His blessing be upon us. So let's go to chapter 6, verse 1. Verses 1 and 2. The outline is very simple. We're just going to walk through the first four seals. So we read, Now I watch when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come. So right here, as you come to chapter 6, verse 1, you have the Lamb, you have seven seals, four living creatures, and you have this, this crow with seals. All these things cause us to say, wait, wait, where is that coming from? What Lamb is that? What crow is that? What seals are those? What four living creatures? That means what? Context. You need to look before in order to understand what's happening. So look at, starting chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation, that will help us with the context here. And in 4 and 5, that's the heart of the book. That's the theological heart of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. And here we have a picture of what's taking place in heaven. That's the control room of the whole universe. 
So that's what we have in 4 and 5, the operation room. And you see in chapter 4, as John is taken to heaven to see what's taking place there, chapter 4 and chapter 5, there is a difference. What is the difference between chapter 4 and chapter 5? Who is missing chapter 4? Who is missing chapter 4? The Lamb! Jesus Christ is missing in chapter 4. He shows up in chapter 5. So we have a picture of heaven in chapter 4. Of heaven without Jesus, without the Lamb. And then you move to chapter 5 and who is there? The Lamb. So the only rapture we have in Revelation is the rapture of the Lamb. He's taken into heaven between chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 4, before His ascension, before His resurrection. Chapter 5 is Jesus now ascended into heaven. And look at chapter 3. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. Jesus promised to the church in Laodicea. Chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquer and sat down with my Father on his throne. Throne, throne. And now chapter 4 and 5 is all about the throne room of God. It's leading us now to see why Jesus can promise Christians to sit with Him on the throne, because now He's seated on the throne, and that's chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verse 1, says, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So, brothers and sisters, you need to... To be attentive here to the flow of what's happening. So he sees God the Father holding the scroll, sealed with seven seals. Number seven, fullness, completion, completely sealed. And there is a scroll. And then we see that John starts weeping very loudly. Because no one, he cannot see anyone worthy to take that scroll and do what? Open up. So the question is, what is this scroll that's so important that is in heaven? Nobody can open it. And John is weeping and crying in desperation. And here is what I believe. This scroll is a picture of God's plan for judging evil, redeeming His people, and transforming His creation. A plan anchored in the death and resurrection of Christ and consummated at His return. So, thus, the plan that connects the cross to the new creation. And we see that in Revelation 6 through 22. So, this scroll that God the Father is holding contains the unfolding plans of salvation and judgment from the resurrection to the consummation, from the inauguration to the consummation of all things. That would be the scroll of Daniel. Do you remember that Daniel sees a scroll and the scroll is sealed and he cannot open until the last days? 
The prophet Daniel has this scroll and he cannot read it sealed. Closed for the last days. And now it's the coming of Jesus, the inauguration of the last days. Now this scroll can be opened. God always brings salvation and judgment together. So in this scroll we have God's decree of salvation and condemnation that expands from the resurrection to the second coming of Jesus. And you see, verse 4, chapter 5, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Here's the desperation of John. Was it all in vain? His death? The Messiah coming? Following Jesus? Is that all chaotic now? And remember what the angel says to John? Stop weeping. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion, a king. And then John looks and what does he see? What does John see? A lion? Please help me. A lamb was slain. So it shows us that the victory of Christ, the conquest of Christ, is through suffering and pain. That's what he's showing. Yes, he's the lion, but he's the lamb, one who was slaughtered, just like the Passover lamb. That's what John sees here. And then you see Jesus as worthy of taking the scroll, and, and now as king sitting by his father's throne, executing salvation and judgment until his second coming. And all the heavenly beings start to worship him and praise him. So that's chapter 5. So now chapter 5 ends with Jesus holding the scroll that has all the purposes of God until the second coming and the consummation of Christ. So now we get ready to go to chapter 6. Look at chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And as He's opening the seven seals, He's executing things to come. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder. And here we have the four living creatures that were presented to us in chapter 4. And the four living creatures, when you read there, they are a picture. They're symbolizing the whole created order. And they are cherubim, they are angels, heavenly beings that represent the whole creation. And you have four. And that's important. Because the earth is pictured as having four corners. North, south, east and west. The four corners of the earth. So you have four living creatures. And they represent the whole created order. And now they are serving Christ here. So when He opens the scroll, one of the creatures says with a voice like thunder, Come! And the voice like thunder reminds us not only of chapter 4, but chapter 4 takes us back to the Exodus. That's the first time that we hear about God's voice sounding like thunder. So it takes us back to the Exodus where God came with salvation and judgment, establishing Israel as a type of new creation. And that's exactly what we have here. So you see the flow. And I look and behold a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. 
The first thing you, you need to think about horses, we love thinking about horses as beautiful animals to ride. So we have Debbie here, she loves horses. She has horses as pets. But in ancient times, when you talk about horse, a horse was the emblem of war, power, might. And he sees a white horse. And upon this horse there is a rider. So here we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That became very famous, this, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. People use for all sorts of things. If you Google the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you're going to find all sorts of things. From football game, from American football game, to cell phone companies. Okay, you're going to... But it's right here. And you have four horsemen. And they are connected to the four living creatures. Because these four horsemen, they're acting upon the earth. That makes completely sen complete sense. You have the four living creatures that represent the whole created or the whole earth. And now you have the four horsemen going throughout the whole earth. North, south, east, and west. The completion here. And then the question is, who is this rider? Who is this one riding the white horse? Who do you think the rider is? And there are some very faithful, good scholars that have different opinions. Uh, honestly, the strangest one was from John MacArthur with his dispensational theology. He said that, this one is the Antichrist promoting peace throughout the whole earth after their church is raptured. But besides him, you have three major views of the white horse with its rider. And one is that represents false prophets, false teaching throughout the earth, attacking the church. And they say that because the bull was the major symbol of Apollos. Paul is the Greek god who inspired prophecy. So some faithful scholars believe that's actually false teaching is spreading throughout the earth. Others believe that the white horse is just a picture of war in general. Conquest. That's most scholars hold to this view. Is that just a picture of conquest. Conquering. Wars. I take with other faithful scholars that this is actually a picture, a symbol of the triumph of the gospel going forth. That's my take. I believe that the first horseman is actually a symbol of the gospel going forth to all the earth, conquering the people of God. And I believe that because, first of all, in Revelation, the color white is always, always used for Heavenly things. Holy ones. Second, so far in the book of Revelation, to conquer, Nikau, the verb, has so far, until chapter 6, has only been used for Jesus Christ and for the church. Another reason, the Greek construction of this verse, and then in verse 19, verse 11, and behold, I saw a white horse. The Greek construction here is the same as in chapter 19, verse 11, when John sees Jesus Christ in the white horse. 
I'm not saying that this one is Jesus, but I'm saying that's the power of the gospel going forth. Another reason why I believe that's the gospel power conquering, because the first thing that the resurrected Jesus did was to send the good news of his resurrection to the disciples who had been dispersed, to bring Peter and John back to him. And the first thing that the ascended Jesus does as soon as he's as soon as he ascends into heaven, is what? Who does he send? The Holy Spirit. Why? So the church can go to all the nations. So that's why I believe it's a beautiful picture of his opening the seals and telling the first thing I'm doing after my resurrection is to send the gospel forth, to conquer, bent on conquest. The gospel force is pictured with this white horse as a military power riding through the earth, conquering people from every tribe and nation. We see that in chapter 7. And also, another parallel here is John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you, I tell you the truth. It's your adventure that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will what? Convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Not that he might convict, he will convict. Have we not been convicted of sin and coming to Christ? The crown. The crown is the is not the royal diadem of a king, but the crown is the Stephanos. The wreath that was given to one who conquered. And the picture is the gospel will conquer. The gospel will triumph. The bow. What is the bow? The bow was a symbol of war. The same Greek word we find in the Old Testament when God makes a covenant with Noah. And what does he hang up? There was no Hebrew word for rainbow. It's a bow. And God hangs his bow Meaning, I'm done for now fighting with creation. And now as the gospel comes, and the gospel brings a new creation, the bow is in the hand of the gospel, in causing all things to become a new creation. And that's exactly what we see with the sixth seal, when creation is destroyed, in order for the new creation to come. So, I agree with William Hendrickson when he says, By means of the Word and the Spirit, the testimonies and tears of His disciples, His own intercession, their prayers, the angels of heaven and armies on earth, the trumpets of judgment and bows of wrath, our Lord is riding forth victoriously, conquering and to conquer. And look at this church in Salem, Oregon. How far away from the seven churches in Asia when they first received this letter. And we see the triumph of the gospel conquering, conquering people from every nation, tribe, and language. Here is the proof of what's taking place. Isn't he writing, conquering as a conqueror? That's exactly what we see. And then it makes much sense because before our 
beloved brothers who are post-millennial get all excited and say, Yes, the gospel will triumph. And then they have a different idea of triumph. You've got to remember that every, every time that the gospel goes forth, the gospel brings what? Persecution and suffering. Ah. Ah. Just like Jesus. He conquers through suffering, pain, the sword, death. And that leads to the other horsemen. And we see right in verses 4 through the rest, the other horsemen. And it's a picture, a beautiful picture of the triumph of the, of the gospel, the gospel coming, and right after, who is riding? Persecution, pain, suffering that Christians go through. I agree with Beal when he writes, John has said already that Christ has begun to reign over earthly kings. Now in chapter 6, he explains that his reign extends even over the situations of suffering in which many Christians find themselves. Some Christians may have wondered if Christ really was sovereign over disastrous circumstances, such as Nero's cruel mass persecution after the fire of Rome in A.D. 64. They may have asked the same questions about broader disasters, such as the destructive earthquake in the 60s, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79, and the calamitous grain famine of 92 A.D. Revelation 6 is intended to show that Christ rules over such an apparently chaotic world and that suffering does not happen indiscriminately or by chance. Listen to this. This section reveals, in fact, that destructive events are brought about by Christ for both redemptive and judicial purposes. So, as the gospel goes forth, there is another one who comes after. Verse 3, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And now came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now this horse, the color is red. Red. And implies the bloodshed that's taking place. And I believe that this bloodshed is primarily the bloodshed of Christians. Christians are being killed by the sword. And that's all we see John telling us. You see, it's, it's so tempting for us to come to this book and place our situation. We don't want to know what the churches were going through. We don't know what's happening right now. And we forget that this book was written to suffering churches. And here's the explanation of what's happening. The word slay there, the ESV says, is the word slaughter. This word slaughter is only used for Jesus and the Christians in the book of Revelation. It's primarily used for Christians and the Lamb. And we know that because in 6, 9, look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been what? Slain, slaughtered because of the Lamb. Jesus spoke about bringing a sword. And it's amazing the parallel between Jesus' words in Matthew 10 and what we see here. 
And when you go home, read Matthew 10 and see the context of persecution towards Christians. He says, do not think that I have come to bring what? Peace. Oh, I was given authority to him to remove peace. To the earth, I have not come to bring peace, but what? Same Greek word for sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Huh. Making sense in the context of suffering, persecution. So as the gospel goes forth conquering, it also brings the next horseman, that is, bloodshed, the sword, persecution. That's what Jesus says in John 16:33. In the world you you will you will it's a promise. You will have tribulation. That's the promise of Christ to all his servants. You will have tribulation. But take heart because what? I conquered. That's the Greek word nikao, I conquered. The world. Note. So, that's the power of Christ and the sovereignty of His majesty in allowing. Look at the, the, passive, the passive form of the verbs. It was permitted. It was given. Who is the ultimate authority here? Jesus Christ, the Lamb. The Christians in the first century who were experiencing all sorts of bloodshed could be confident that the partial removed of Shalom was ordained and directed by the sovereign Jesus. And if some of you would go to Nigeria right now, Somalia, the Middle East, you'd experience that right now. The gospel riding forth, conquering, and at the same time, the red horseman riding with bloodshed. The third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, the third living creature say, Come! And I look and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. The scales here, the balance, was a picture of famine. In times of famine, the grains were Wait in, you'd put in the scale to make sure that everyone had just a little bit. And that's what we have here, a picture of famine. And says, he continues, and we see that because it says, And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. Let me ask you, who is in the midst of the four living creatures? Chapter 5, verse 6, the Lamb. So that's the voice of Jesus. And look what Jesus is saying. A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The inflation here is outrageous. If you study the numbers, you see that the prices increase over 15, almost 20% higher than normal, the food. And where is the inflation coming from? Who is ordaining the inflation in the world? Oh. The voice is coming from where? The Lamb. He is orchestrating everything. 
And honestly, if you notice, you know here that it's partial. He says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. There is a partial protection of things. I like what Dennis Johnson says. He says, there is, however, a limit to this judgment. As there is to all God's providential judgments, as long as God's patience delays the final judgment. Limitations of various kinds distinguish restricted anticipatory expressions of the wrath of the Lamb throughout history from the unrestrained display of His judgment at the end of history. When we see in John's visions restrained and partial judgment, we are being shown symbols of the course of the ordinary history between the coming of Christ, the comings of Christ. As Christians see societies crumble and collapse, are we seeing that? Our response should not be terrified alarm, as though our, our security were bound up with fragile human network of law and order, but anticipation and confidence. The Lamb is now on the throne with God's plan for history firmly in His hand. And if you look at the book of Revelation, you see that some Christians were already going through hunger. Remember, Paul says, what shall separate us from the love of God? The sword. And then he says, famine. In chapter 2, the Lord talks about the church. And he says, I know your poverty. Meaning, some Christians were, because of their faith, they were already being hindered from buying and selling. And what happens if you cannot buy and sell? You cannot purchase food. Some Christians were already, already going through hunger. In chapter 13, we hear about those who cannot buy and sell because they don't have the mark of the beast. What means if you don't buy and sell? Hunger. And that's why in chapter 7, there's the beautiful promise in verse 16. That the people of God, once they are before His throne, they will hunger no more. And there is also a spiritual aspect of judgment. Spiritually speaking, there is a famine of God's Word when people reject the Gospel. There is a spiritual starvation that comes from the judgment of Christ upon those who oppose Him. But for Christians, there is always oil and wine. He always has His portion for His people. Fourth seal. The rider on the pale horse. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I look and behold a pale horse. Horos, from where you get chlorine. That's the color of this horse. And the color is literally greenish. And it's a different type of color. For those who know, you have seen dead people, that's the color of dead people. Corpse. I remember working at a funeral service for a long time, so I, I was used to see dead people. A lot of dead people. And you know that the color is different. It's kind of gray, greenish color. So it's this cadaverous color that's given to this horse, and it matches with the rider, because that's the only rider that has a name. And what is his name? Death. Death. And he's not alone. Death always comes with whom? 
Yes. Hades. And that's not a reference to hell. Hades takes us back to the Hebrew Sheol. And that's the grave, the burial place. Every time you have someone dead, what do you do with the dead body? You put in the grave. So you have death and grave coming together. And notice here, and they were given authority over a force of the earth. The force of the earth implies restriction. Because when you come to the sixth seal, there is no restriction. It's restricted, it's limited what's taking place here. And was given authority, once again, the sovereignty of, of Jesus over everything. And all sorts of judgments. You have sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Christians, by that time, were being thrown to the wild beasts. And the wild beasts, the beast reminds us of the ultimate beast in Revelation. Satanic force. Jesus is telling His church that all types of deaths inside and outside the church are His instruments to further the gospel and judge His enemies. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Because earlier in Revelation 1.18, look at there, Revelation 1.18. Starting verse 17. Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forever. And I have the keys, the power, the authority of death and Hades. Jesus has authority and sovereignty over the worst of our enemies, death. He has domesticated death, just like a pet, just like an animal. And he uses now to advance his kingdom. That's the picture we have here. And all sorts of death, by pestilence, sword, famine, wild beasts. Many people this year and this, this past year came to Revelation 6 asking the question, is coronavirus in Revelation, especially in Revelation 6? Many, many people were asking this question. Is, is coronavirus in Revelation 6? Yes. Just like the cold virus is. Just like the black, black plague was. is in Revelation 6. Because there is nothing. There is not a single virus that's outside his control. That's what he's showing us. Every single molecule, plot, virus, death, war has been released from the throne room of God. The only power that the kingdom of darkness has is given to Satan by Christ and for a time in order to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes when we have calamities, Wildfires, floods, hurricanes. People ask, is that judgment? 
is, is God in this? And you hear some Christians say, no, we cannot say that's judgment. I cannot say that God is in this. Brothers and sisters, there is no partiality with God. He's either judging or saving. It's not like there is a moment in heaven where it's neutral. Oh, I don't know. You decide if it's judgment or salvation. Every act, everything that takes place around us is coming from the direct of Jesus Himself. Sometimes people are ashamed, embarrassed to say that Christ is involved with some crisis, with some catastrophe, some calamity. If He's not, so who is? Satan? That's a scary thought. But some might say, oh, these things have been happening since the fall of Adam. And I say, amen. These things have been happening since the fall of Adam. But there is a drastic change in heaven after, after the resurrection of Christ. In heaven there is a change. Think about that. Heaven is eternal. There could be no change. And yet there is, because once the Lamb ascends, He takes the scroll. So, before the ascension of Christ, yes, all these things were happening. But they were being orchestrated for His first coming. And now, all these things continue to take place in order for Him to bring the consummation of all things. And now, He has a bride from every tribe and nation and language. He's working out His plans to adorn her. So, what is new with all these sufferings, if we have had since the beginning, is the resurrection of Christ. Why these things are taking place? He's taking place now in order to purify His church and bring the consummation of all things. And I come to an end here, and I know that for some of you this was very frustrating, this interpretation of Revelation. Some of you are looking at me like, wow, are you serious? That was it? The problem is, we have such a high view of ourselves and such a low view of the church. We come to the Bible and we want to know about us, about my comfort, my security, my plans. And we forget that we are not, as individuals or as a nation, in the center of God's purposes. The church is. The church is the center of God's purpose. God shed His blood, not for America. God shed His blood for whom? The church. America, Canada, Brazil, Europe. They're not the lampstands standing before the throne. Who is the lampstand? The church. The church. Paul says... That the glory of a man is his what? His bride. And what we see in Revelation is the glory of Christ in his bride, the church. As his bride follows after him, imitates him in suffering, in being faithful, in conquering through death. How does the book of Revelation end? The groom and the bride. Who is the bride? 
the church. He's working all things. He's working all things for the glory of His name through His bride. Look what Paul says. Paul says, Now, Ephesians 3.20, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory. How? In the church and in Christ Jesus. God is glorified through His church. And that's what the book of Revelation shows us. The glory of His bride. He's adorning her. That's what Paul tells in Ephesians 5. He died to buy her, to sanctify His bride, the church. But we have such a low view of the church... That doesn't make cool. That's not on the tabloids of the the, the Christian culture to read this book as if Christ is showing His glory through His bride, conquering through suffering. And as the church is suffering, as the church is being persecuted, do you know what He's doing? He has a cup. And all the persecution, all the blood is filling up this cup. That's seal number five. Seal number five. How long, O Sovereign Lord, that you bring the consummation of all things? Rest. Rest for a little while. I still have more Christians to die. Until the last one dies, I will not be back. That's when Christ comes back. When the last one dies, and then the cup of His wrath is filled full, says, all right, the time arrived. The white horse will not, the white horse will not ride anymore. There will be no partial, one quarter, a third. The judgment is full and complete. And why? In order that him and his bride may dwell together in a new heaven and a new earth. Because this earth has been contaminated by sin. It became an idol. People idolized the earth. Look at all these green deals. It's an idol. And idols must be destroyed. And He will so He can dwell with His bride in a new Eden. That's all we have here. But we don't like that. America. America is in the center of God's purposes. I talk to some of you and I see you are so consumed with what's going on in America. And you have no eyes to see what the Lord is doing with His church. My freedoms, my future, my children, my grandchildren. You have no eyes and heart to see what the Lord is doing for His bride through persecution and suffering and affliction and famine and inflation. Last week a study came showing that for the first time the U.S. a great number, a great, great number of people now profess to no longer be members of church. Do you know what that is? The sanctification of the church. 
cleaning his bride through pain and suffering. That's what the Lord is doing. Today's the day the white horse is still riding, conquering. The red horse is still riding, bringing suffering. The black horse, the pale horse, there is no single death that's outside Jesus' control. From the death of a baby in the womb of his or her mom to the death of a king or a war, nothing, nothing is outside his control and his purposes is not for you to feel good about yourself, but for his church. For his church. That's why he's working all things for now. His bride. So the risen and resurrected Lamb is orchestrating, executing, and accomplishing all things for the glory of His bride. His new humanity. Do you believe that every disaster, every calamity, every pain, every war that's taking place since the ascension of Christ is for the building up of His church? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? So live like that. Rejoice when they persecute you. You get a voice of the martyrs or open doors and you see all that, all that John is talking about here, right here. You have the white horse riding, conquering people from Islam, Hinduism. And at the same time you read people suffering with famine. And you have others who are killed by the sword. Oh, but I thought that that was for the future when the church is taken. It's all here to comfort the church. Everything that's taking place is under the Lamb's control and ordination. Father, we thank You for Your love, for Your care towards us. Thank You for opening the curtains and letting us see what's truly taking place. Forgive us. Forgive us, O Lord, for thinking so small about Your bride, thinking so highly about ourselves, for being so consumed with all sorts of theories, trying to explain what's taking place when we know what's taking place. The Lamb is in charge. He's purifying His bride. He's judging her enemies. Until that day when all things will be fully made new and He will dwell with her. What a glorious thought. So help us. And I pray that your rider on the white horse would be right here, right now, conquering. There are people here who have not been conquered by you. And I pray that you'd conquer them. Hunt them down. Make them trophies of your grace, Lord. And help us. Help us to see all the other horsemen as the fruit of your sovereignty and your love towards your people and your judgments towards those who hate you. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Amen.